This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anthony Lowenstein, welcome back to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I decided to bring you back, uh, considering what's happening in the world at the moment, because I think you're very level-headed, um, uh, you're articulate, and you are an expert um, in what's happening in the region. And I'm, I don't know what you call me, I'm a participant to a certain extent, but I do wear my heart and up on my sleeve and I get very emotional about it because I come from a Lebanese family my family, you know, very close family is still in Lebanon and I've had an empathy uh, towards the region for a long time. I'm Arab. I mean, that's why. So I, I'm feeling really vulnerable. I'm feeling really emotional and I am angry as well. So I thought you would be a good person to talk to about what's going on. Now, for those of us, and there will be some people out there that don't understand. So do you want to just give me an overview of what's happened in the last month? Yeah, on one level, it's hard to know where to begin. But the short answer is on October 7, there was a attack by Hamas, which is a Palestinian political organisation, but also a militant organisation that rules Gaza. An attack that came from Gaza into Israel. There were roughly 1,200 Israelis killed. Many of them were civilians. Some of them were Israeli soldiers. Hamas took a number of people hostage and took them back to Gaza. Just for those who don't understand, the, the distance between Israel and Gaza was literally down the road. So I was living for many years in Jerusalem, which is in well, Palestine and Israel, depends, I guess, who you ask. And it's like an hour and a half from there. So it's incredibly small area. Israel and Palestine fits into half of Tasmania. It's mm. tiny. Hamas took roughly 240 hostages. We don't actually know the exact number, but roughly that including men, women and children, including babies and soldiers. And as soon as this happened, it was inevitable that Israel was going to unleash hell on Gaza. And in the last month or so, there's been at least 11,000 Palestinians killed, many of them, the vast majority of them were civilians. And what's emerged very quickly is that I mean, I obviously speak as someone who's Jewish. I'm not religious by any means, but I'm Jewish that I am. I was, well, on the one hand, I was, I guess, shocked by the initial attack by Hamas. I thought it was brutal. I thought it was illegal. I thought it was utterly, utterly counterproductive to the Palestinian cause. And why? What? There was no follow-up, nothing. They've left their people so exposed. I mean, it's so hard to get into the thinking yeah. of Hamas. Obviously, I've spoken to various people since, not Hamas, but various people mm. since. There's been some reporting about the so-called Hamas thinking behind that. Terrible. I mean, certainly they, I think, viewed, and it's probably hard to generalise, but the general feeling, I think, amongst some Hamas leadership, many of whom do not live in Gaza, live across the Arab world, 
was the status quo is utterly unacceptable. We're living in an open-air prison in Gaza, which is true for those who don't know. Egypt and Israel have imposed this brutal siege on Gaza for nearly 20 years. And we want to do something which breaks free of this, that somehow causes the status quo to be ruptured. And in the hope, in my view naively, that many in the Arab world will come to our aid when we fight this inevitable war with Israel. And that hasn't really happened, and I would argue it was never going to happen. Now, many people in the Arab world, on the Arab street, if you can call it that, are undeniably supportive of Palestine and Palestinians and have come out in large numbers. But Arab leaders, as I talk about a lot in my book, are in general in bed with Israel, have been for years. Now, there's been some criticism by Arab leaders of what Israel's doing, a call for a ceasefire, a call for some kind of humanitarian pause, call it whatever you want. But there has not been this idea of, for example, Hezbollah that is a major political force in Lebanon or other... Arab military forces coming to the aid of Hamas, and I suspect there will not be, mm-hmm. regardless of what happens in Gaza. So, mm. yeah, it's it's a catastrophe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the last time we spoke, and I re-listened to that podcast over the weekend in preparation for this, and I think in the last 15 minutes of that podcast, you said, I said, where to? What will we see we see change in our lifetime. And that was, we recorded, well, we released that podcast the 8th of June. So I, think we, we must, I think we spoke in May. Yeah. Right. And there was, you know, no no conflict and you could say, you know, relatively it was peaceful back then. But what, do you remember what you said to me? I think I probably said is something that I talk about at the end of my book, The Palestine Laboratory, which is something at some point will happen, a major eruption. Mm. Of course, I didn't know what, mm. didn't know how a war, something unpredictable, an attack from another nation on Israel. I didn't particularly predict it would be Hamas per se, but could have been Hezbollah, someone, Mm -hmm. that would therefore trigger a massive, overwhelming Israeli response to continue what many Israeli political leaders, media figures, and tragically many in the Israeli public, which has been borne out by studies, including in the last month, since October 7, to finish what they claim they did not finish in 1948. Now, Mm. what that means for those who don't know is 1948, Israel was founded. But to create Israel, the Jewish state, three years after the Holocaust, it required the ethnic cleansing of 750,000 Palestinians who were forcibly kicked Mm. out. And uh, some of them are still in Gaza, the West Bank, what is now the West Bank, Arab nations, Lebanon, Jordan, etc., and in Australia, diaspora. And you have both before October 7 and a massive acceleration since. Countless Israeli political leaders openly talking about ethnic cleansing. So when you have Jewish spokespeople in much of the West, so-called Jewish leaders, establishment leaders in Australia, the US and elsewhere saying, no, 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 Israel's not interested in some kind of mass violence against Palestinians. The response is, listen to Israeli leaders. They're telling us Mm. in English and Hebrew. It's not a secret. Now, what that practically means is still unclear. Mm. There are many in Israel that would love the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza to somehow be kicked out into Egypt Egypt. or to Sinai, which obviously is next to Gaza. Mm. And it's been clear that very much since the beginning, 
Israel has been pressuring Egypt to take these people in, saying we'll give you huge amounts of money. Egypt is massively in debt. Mm. Israel's been offering, we'll pay off your debts. Take these people. Egypt so far, which is obviously dictatorship as well, has said no. Mm. But now you have the majority of the population in Palestine living in the south of Gaza. The north of Gaza has been literally levelled, flattened. There are, according to Israeli sources, about 1.7 million, which is the majority of Palestinians, have nowhere to live. Mm. Completely displaced. Displaced within their own territory. Mm. And not surprisingly for many Palestinians, the older ones especially, but also younger ones, this triggers understandable trauma, Mm. either generational trauma or lived trauma of what happened in 1948 or 1967, mm. when there was another major war with Arab states. Can I just interrupt you there? Please. From what I see from my perspective, and I'm not a journalist, and we can talk about journalism because, what, 39 journalists have been murdered by the Israeli army? At least. In the right? last month. Yeah, in the last month. I mean, you know, when that happens, you're hiding something. And but often, sorry to interrupt you, Cheryl, often deliberately targeted. Which they targeted is not their families. Deliberately targeting families, which mm. people might find shocking to hear, but not dissimilarly. To be clear, the US targeted Al Jazeera journalists in Iraq and Afghanistan deliberately, mm. 2001, 2003, mm. deliberately targeted journalists who they didn't like what they were saying, mm. what they were reporting. That was the US, yes, but Israel has a long history of doing this. Mm. Please go on. I just want to, just from, from you know, a layperson's perspective, I can't understand why there hasn't been an agreement to let those hostages free. Well, then we're seeing the murder of journalists, doctors. Apparently, Médecins Sans Francais is saying that 100 doctors have been murdered. Anyway, these figures, you know, is what I'm seeing and I'm trying to drill down to sources and make sure that the facts are right. Men, women, children, babies. And today I read about a sniper in a hospital, in El Shifa Hospital, mm. shooting people as they were trying to flee the hospital. I mean, it is horrendous on so many levels and we're sitting here watching and I have this feeling and you're going to, and this is just like out of nowhere. This is just what I think. Do you remember weapons of mass destruction, right? That was instrumental in my upbringing as a journalist. You mean right. 2003, Iraq? Yes. Absolutely. Right. And we were, people like now were taking to the streets, were protesting and they were telling us every day, you know, the leadership was saying, you know, but there are weapons of mass destruction. Weapon, you know, Tony Blair, the Australian, everybody was on board with mm. weapons of mass destruction. And many in my profession, journalism too, tragically. Not and, all, but far too many. And it turned out, no, there wasn't. Nonsense. Yeah. yeah. I feel there's something going on here that I don't know about and that a lot of us don't know about. Because I even saw Hillary Clinton. She's out there at the moment. You know, every point, you know, it's a mass, it's a mass, you know. And it's like they're forcing us to believe something that we know is not true. And that's what happened back then as well. You know, one of the things about 2003 as a journalist, uh, and I was in Sydney at the time, when the Iraq war started was it was so clear that there were so many powers that be, both in the political and media system, that had a real interest in making sure that that war happened, as you say, mm. despite the fact that they were the biggest protests in history, if not since the Vietnam War. So you fast forward 20 years, pretty much just over 20 years, and it could not be clearer the profound disconnect between the entire Western political mm. leadership... US, EU, 
Australia, UK, and many of the publics in those countries that are protesting in massive numbers. Uh, the UK over the weekend in Huge. London, possibly a million people. Huge. Massive, unprecedented Yesterday protests. in Sydney. Huge. Huge. Yeah. And that, I think, shows not just a disconnect. You know, you mentioned Tony Blair. It's worth saying in passing, just before I came in here, I saw that Israel is exploring the possibility of Tony Blair being kind of in charge of something in relation to Gaza in the coming months. Like, frankly, as if the uh. Palestinians haven't suffered enough. That's just an aside. But I think there is a real, I mean, so much is, is happening on this issue, but on the one hand, you have a Jewish leadership in Australia, US, UK, when I say the leadership, people who mostly declare themselves leaders, Jewish organisations, Zionist organisations, saying, we speak with one voice, we support Israel 110%, we have to eliminate Hamas, essentially giving carte blanche to what Israel is doing. Mm. And the problem with that is, which is something I've said for 20 plus years, is that there is no one uniform Jewish view. Yes, there are Jews, to be sure, in Australia and elsewhere who support Israel and what it's doing. I'm not denying that. That's the reality. But there is a growing, I would say, vocal and growing minority Look at Grand of Jews. Central Station. Absolutely. So in the last weeks, there's been mass Ab- protests around, around, you know, around the Statue of Liberty, Grand Central Station. U.S. Congress in Washington yeah. of critical Jews, mostly from an organisation for those who are curious to look up more, Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now, two really good groups mm-hmm. in the U.S. Now, they're a minority of Jews. I know that. They're big but, numbers, but, though. And they're growing, absolutely. Yeah. And I think what is happening is that you find this growing, to me, as I've said for a long time, there is a growing civil war within the Jewish community mm. about, about Israel and Palestine. And I've seen in the last month since October 7, this real hardening of positions by, you could say, pro-Israel Jewish community here. Now, I understand and acknowledge, so I think it's worth saying that the shock of what happened on October 7 is worth thinking about and pausing and acknowledging Uh, and saying that. And yet at the same time, there seems to be this complete cognitive dissidence that says we are, as a Jewish community, supporting Israel right or wrong, even though I would argue, and many people would argue, that what Israel is doing is making Jews more unsafe and everyone more unsafe. That somehow anti-Semitism, which in some parts of the world, including here, appears to be growing, Islamophobia seems to be rising, that worries me deeply. Mm, Terrible. But it worries me even more so as someone Jewish, because I see the Jewish establishment here in Australia claiming to speak in one voice and saying, frankly, Palestinian lives do not matter. Palestinians are invisible. Mm -hmm. Palestinian civilians being killed in insane numbers doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that would not contribute to anti-Semitism, doesn't, nothing justifies an anti-Semite doing something horrible to a Jew, saying something, attacking a synagogue. Of course it doesn't. But the idea that that kind of dehumanising language and actions of Israel and its most vociferous supporters doesn't impact people's views towards Israel and Jews, of course it does. I feel, again, layperson's view, that they have been exposed in this process that the treatment of Palestinians that have gone on for 75 years has really been exposed. I think that the extent of the violence, the extent of how public it is, has really shown the world that 
it is an apartheid state and people are now noticing and having an opinion. But what I am absolutely shocked about is, and I wrote, I've written to the Prime Minister many times and I've written to Penny Wong. You mean since October 7? Yeah. I've said to that, and, and I'll say this over and over again, by all of those leaders standing up in day one, not really knowing what the situation is, we're shocked, we're horrified, everybody's upset and saying, I stand with Israel, that very act made it divisive. That very act made people take sides. And as leadership, I think that is appalling leadership. And by Biden standing up there and then visiting Israel, he signed the permission slip for genocide. Mm. That's what he did. Rather than sitting back, okay, this is an atrocity. How is the world going to handle this? They went in gung-ho. And, you know, Anthony Albanese, who walked with the Palestinians, you know, not even that long ago, is over there in the US talking about a Palestinian aid package while Biden is giving Israel $14 billion or whatever it was. They're standing side by side at the podium talking about that. I mean, is it just us that see that as totally fucking nuts? No, <laughs> I don't think it's just you. I think there is a undeniable growing public awareness. And, you know, I've often said about this that there are actually very few global issues that generate this much interest for so long. In the last year and a half, I'd say the Russia-Ukraine war certainly mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. for good reason because it's an atrocity. atrocity. Yep. Israel-Palestine certainly has for decades, but particularly because what's happening in Palestine, as I often say, does not stay there. Mm-hmm. The occupation of Palestine is horrible and bad enough, but it bleeds into so many mm-hmm. other issues. And, I mean, the, the response by... The Australian government here, I wish I could say I was that surprised. I mean, on lots of issues, it's so clear that we do not have an independent foreign policy. Mm-hmm. We are essentially mirroring exactly what the US is saying. And when you have Joe Biden or Anthony Blinken, who's the mm-hmm. US Secretary of State, saying, we're talking to Israel and really hoping that they look after civilians more. What I often say is, no. and I've said this for a month, don't look at what they say, look at what they do. Do. And what they're doing is they've rushed a lot of weapons to Israel. And I might add, so is Australia, by the way, yeah. and so is the UK. Yeah. And there's a court case at the moment here in the federal court. I've got no involvement with that personally, but I know people who are involved in trying to expose what exactly is Australia selling to yeah. Israel since October 7, and is it being used in the current war in Gaza? And do you think the Prime Minister knows about this? Do you Which think- aspect? The weapons? or yeah. I? I think there's a very good chance he would, and even more than that, that I'm a co-founder and co-editor of a group called Declassified Australia, which does investigative work around Australia's relations with the world. And my colleague in that, Peter Cronow, used to be a senior journo on Four Corners, did a story a few weeks ago which went viral, which essentially said, in short, that in the centre of Australia there's a US intelligence base called Pine Gap. It's been here for decades and it's used by the US regularly to get real-time intelligence in its brutal wars in Iraq, Afghanistan and beyond. And he had a very reliable source of someone who spoke on the record who used to work for Pine Gap, so not a secret, that said that the US was getting real-time information that they were passing on to the Israelis that Israel was using and its so-called targeting in Gaza. So you have a US intelligence base in the centre of Australia, that part's not secret, giving information to Israel when it's clearly committing brutal war crimes, killing huge amounts of civilians in Gaza. Australia knows that. When I say Mm -hmm. Australia, 
Albanese knows that. Penny Wong is well aware of that. So I have a friend of mine who used to be in Australian intelligence who sort of said, Australia's trying to play both sides of the fence, but no one buys it. The one hand saying, yes, we're very concerned about civilian casualties, where at the same time they know two things. One, we're sending defence equipment to Israel to help its so-called mm-hmm. war in Gaza. And secondly, there's a knowledge that Pine Gap intelligence base is being used to help Israel mm. in its war. Mm. So that cognitive dissidence, hypocrisy, call it whatever you want, is clear. And it was amazing to me that we did this story... It went viral, seen insane amounts of times. Not one Australian media outlet picked it up. Now, I don't think that's a conspiracy. I don't think it's – read that as you will. I think it's just the sense that it got picked up and was read by huge amounts of people globally and here. But ABC, Guardian, no one else touched it. They're too frightened. Everybody's frightened. And, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, it's funny because I've been very careful, very active on Instagram, as you know. Yes, I've noticed that. (laughs) Yeah, very active. Making friends in all the right places, Cheryl. Yeah, but I am checking sources. And when I read that article, I came back to you to check the source. Is it it kosher? That's my way. I said, yes, we we did it. It's kosher. Yeah. That's right. And 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 no one's questioned the veracity, by the way. No, no one's questioned it. Uh, And I've been really careful with that, you Mm. know, because you don't want to be spreading fake news, of course. But, you know, that's another thing that we should talk about is, like, look at the New York Times, incredible bias. Mm. Now, I want to talk about the relevance of the media because, in a way, they've been so biased that the people rallying, the people people that aren't even, don't subscribe to any of them are now thinking, well, actually, that's not a reliable news source for me. Mm. And because of social media... And I think you said this on the podcast last time. Because of social media, I'm now getting my source from the journalists on the ground in Palestine. The ones who are still alive. There's those four young kids. Yes, there's a handful of who are doing amazing work, like seemingly 24-7. Yeah. And it's making somebody like New York Times or the Herald or, Mm. I mean, the Guardian's probably the best out of all of them. It's making them look really quite stupid. You know, you mentioned the Iraq war before, and that's really relevant to this because... A lot of public studies have shown this in the US, Australia and Europe, that the lies that were told around the Iraq yeah. war and obviously that much of the media, though not all, but much of the media simply parroted, had a profound impact on how the public see the mainstream press. And that was 20 years ago. A lot yeah. of people who were 18, 19 weren't even alive then. But the impact of that, I think, has been profound. And now you have a situation where, and the New York Times, look, I mean, where to begin with the New York Times? Oh, my God. I mean, I've, I, do, I do a lot about this in the in virtually all my books about the New York Times. The New York Times, on some issues, does amazing, wonderful investigative work, to be sure. On Israel-Palestine over the years, <sighs> it's not one of those issues in general, in general. It's so biased. Uh, I think it's a sense that I think there's been a real issue in the Times and much of the American press, and I've said this for years, and the New Yorker is not that dissimilar, is that it's run a protection racket for Israel. Yeah. That's not a conspiracy. It's not like no one's, you know, paying the New York Times to do that. It doesn't work like that. But the kind of people who run those organisations, who are the journalists, with some exceptions, are generally supportive of Israel or sympathetic to it. And there are, for example, until relatively recently, there's barely been any Palestinian reporters working for the New York Times who write for They may use stringers who are based in Gaza. And sometimes publishing, you know, some incredible work. But in general, I think there's a real disconnect. And as, as, as you say, I said months ago, social media, we all know there's yep. massive problems with it. Sure. It causes a lot of global 
carnage in my view. However, an incident like this happens Mm -hmm. and huge amounts of people rush to whether it is Instagram, Twitter, and there's no doubt, yes, there's been massive amounts of misinformation, a lot of crap getting out You've there. All that's careful. true. You've got to be yeah. careful. And also it's important to say, as I detail in my book, that all the social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Google, have a really dark history of routinely censoring or shadow banning Palestinian voices, censoring them, de-platforming them. That's happened a lot in the last month. Where, well, didn't they shut down that big organisation, Palestinian Eye? They did. They I think did. it was it was then re. I yes, think there was an outcry but they and lost it was reopened. all their um, their like their followers. Right, I didn't. I had noticed. Right, scratch. yeah. Yep. I mean, there is, I think, a sense yep. that there, and and I, it's been interesting to to see how, and I, this is what I, I I've said for a long time that even though you can try to censor or de-platform Palestinian voices, some at least. And that's obviously what Israel has been wanting and demanding for these companies for years, as I detail in the book. But the bottom line is, ultimately, it's actually not working. No. As in, the narrative is still getting out. And And they're still trying to shoot them and kill them, and the narrative is still getting out. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. People often say to me, why are the um, Palestinians so helpless? But this, and, and I've only discovered this recently, the amount of money that gets pumped into Israel, like the US gives them billions of dollars every year. And who gives Palestinians anything? Well, Only some Arab states do, but do not they? a lot. Yes, a little. Well, I mean, look, Israel is a is one of the highest recipients of US aid every year. Would it survive without it? I think Israel would survive without military aid, which is a big part of that aid. In fact, there's a growing debate, which hasn't been heard much since October 7, but was starting before, including on the American left, but also on the Israeli right. Yeah that says we don't want this, the right says we don't need this aid because then America's going to hassle us to end the occupation, which of course won't happen anyway. And on the left saying, why is America giving all this money when essentially you have neo-fascists in the Israeli government? This is Mm -hmm. happening before October Mm -hmm. 7, this conversation. There are certain Arab states that have given money to the Palestinians. Qatar, for example, has given money to the Gazans over a number of years. Often Israel destroys infrastructure and then the Qataris... Mm -hmm. I mean, Qatar plays a very curious role. Mm -hmm. A lot of Hamas leaders are based and live in Qatar. They also house the largest US military base in the Middle East. And they're also a key player now. Of course, they they run Al Jazeera. But they also are key negotiators now to maybe get some hostages out. So I guess they're sort of a middleman between Israel and Hamas. They play a very Mm -hmm. curious role. Mm -hmm. 
very curious role. But and most of the Arab leaders for years have sold out the Palestinians, mm. and and Arabs know that. Mm. So in the last month, there's been mass protests across mm. the Arab world, often saying. Basically, why are our leaders backing Israel? Mm-hmm. And I just noticed in the last few days that UAE, which obviously is a very powerful nation, despite its calling for a ceasefire and some kind of cessation of violence, has every intention of remaining 110% close to Israel. That yeah, won't change. Why? Why? Why, why is well, I the, think it's... the governments of the world, including Penny Wong and Anthony mm. Albanese, why are they what is essentially a terrorist regime? Well, it's a hard question to answer. Why? Well, the Arab, many Arab countries, I think, are friendly with Israel, either making deals with them, normalising relations, and Saudi Arabia was probably on the way to doing so. I suspect that'll mm. be pushed back now because of what's happening, although I wouldn't be surprised if it happens at some point. I think it has a lot to do with two things. One, as I say in the book, so much of the Arab world now is reliant on Israeli surveillance technology. It's mm-hmm. a massive factor. And for many Arab repressive states, for them, the Arab Spring was a deep trauma. I mean, Mm. let's be clear, they were the ones who were repressing their own people. But the idea that people could rise up, can you imagine? They never Mm. want that to happen again. Mm. Now, whether that can be stopped is an open question, but what Arab states are doing, including the UAE, is buying massive amounts of Israeli repressive technology, spyware, etc., which they use against their own people. That's part of it. I think also for a lot of Arab states, again, not Arab people, but Arab elites, they see influence in Washington going through Israel. Hmm. In other words, yes, China's a massively rising power, might be a superpower. I mean, it's a superpower of sorts now in the coming decades. But the truth is, in the Middle East at least, China's not a superpower. It's just not. Hmm. Well, whereas Washington clearly is, and I suspect will remain so for a while, despite what's happening hmm. at the moment. And many Arab states, I think, are far more insecure than they want to acknowledge. And they see the backing, support, so-called protection from Washington as going through Israel. So if they come out, so they think, and be too critical of Israel, cut ties with Israel, condemn Israel too much, they worry that they will not get that American support. And there's been lots of Arab leaders over the years that have basically said that. So it's Mm. not me, it's not Mm. my just conjecture. But clearly it shows that there is a major disconnect between Arab peoples, the vast majority of whom support Palestinians, and their leaders who give lip service to... I mean, there was a meeting of all the Arab Muslim states last weekend. I think it was held in Saudi Arabia, and it was a pretty particularly embarrassing affair, apart from the fact that there's this idea that it they... Was, I couldn't even get my head around it. What was the point of it? Well, I guess, I mean, they... I mean, it's weird. Autocrats still want public legitimacy, It's a weird thing where, on the one hand, no one's electing them. I mean, they disappoint themselves or they put their brother or, you know, dad in place or whatever. Or their son, yeah. Or their son. But ultimately, they still crave legitimacy. It's this weird thing Mm. where dictators still want that from them. Mm. They want the public to show how much they are loved. So they wanted to meet in lavish circumstances, I think it was in Saudi Arabia, Mm. and show how much they deeply care about the Palestinians But the ultimate result was there was no real result. There wasn't a conversation about, for example, as Arab states did 50 years ago, an oil embargo, which Mm. was done in the 70s. There's no real discussion about cutting ties. There's no real discussion about not using Israeli repressive technology because they're all desperate to want to keep using it. So 
Yeah, the Arab leadership has been pretty unsurprisingly awful. Yeah. Now, I read somewhere, and I haven't verified this yet, so this is the first time I've spoken about it, but I read somewhere um, on social media that in, four, I think it was 41 states in the US, it is illegal to boycott, is this true, to boycott, boycott Israel? Yeah, I don't know if it's that number, but yes, there has been, and this is long before October 7, of course, right. there has yes. been a concerted effort by mostly Republicans, pro-Israel Democrats and Israel and pro-Israel forces to essentially make it illegal to try to boycott Israel. And what that practically means, as an example, there's a film called Boycott a few years ago, which people can Google. I think it's available to watch. Essentially, there was a teacher, I can't remember what state she was in. She was a Muslim lady who was employed by the state. And she, the only way her contract would continue was if she pledged not to say that she would boycott Israel. <laughs> now she said, she said, uh, she took it to court and it didn't really get resolved in the end. But this idea somehow of having to set a pledge, almost a quasi allegiance to Israel. And I think that, and I've said for a long time, I have been very surprised that there has not been a serious attempt to do that here. You would think it would be more likely to come from the Conservatives, the Liberal Party, and they're obviously the, – it's clear in the last month, by the way, just as an aside, that – and this is not by any means to support what our government's been doing. Labor is divided yes. on Palestine. You don't see Definitely. that much reflected in Albanese well, Tony in Penny Wong. Yes, I there mean, are, Tony Burke hasn't stopped Internally, I hear yeah. that there is – now, this is – I think Labor's position's mostly been terrible. Don't mm. get me wrong. Yeah. But – and this and this has been based on years, and I'm not involved with the Labor Party personally, just to be clear, but – based on a lot of people in the Labor Party trying to change their position or make Mm. it better, basically. Bob Carr, amongst others. Although you don't particularly see that when this catastrophe happens, Anthony Albanese, Penny Wong give knee-jerk support for Israel. But within the party, there are major divisions to the point where I know in certain Western Sydney seats, for those who don't know, generally quite uh, Mm. not only, but a lot of Muslim and Arab communities are based, often vote Labor, though not always. At the next federal election, there I know for sure there will be certain seats where those Labor members will be challenged. And whether they win or lose, I don't know. Oh, I think even but Anthony Albanese. I think they I mean, I'm in his um, electorate. Yes, so am I. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, people are angry. Do you know, because I've been going to the rallies and I, I kind of um, am a little bit, I have to keep moving around. I don't like standing still. So I go around and take photos. And when I do that, I always ask the subject if I can take the photo, which then gets me into a conversation, right? And I love it. Right. So yesterday I would have spoken to about 20 or 30 people and usually everything ends up in a, with a hug. They're just such, I find them so energising, these rallies. But anyway, one of the things that I, I brought up deliberately was, you know, would you vote for the Prime Minister at the next election in light of what's happened? Categorically. And categorically, every one of them almost had voted for him in the past election. He's not reading the room. Yeah, not reading the room and probably hoping that everyone hates Peter Dutton more. Sure, there is that. I mean, there that's quite a calculation. Yes, that's right. I think after the failure of The Voice, which is a separate issue, yeah. but I think oh. will obviously play out come next election. Yeah. Yep. Well, it feels like no one's talking about that in the moment, but it will you know, come back again. I think it's hard to predict, but I think, I mean, the polls suggest, there was a news poll just recently which found that 
Labor is still ahead, but not by that much. No, no, uh, no. And I think, and also with the close results that we've been getting, I mean, you mm. know, if an independent candidate comes up, the teal somebody, yes, you know, I mean, they're all under threat. And I, I do, I think social media has played a large part in that as well. Don't I think, think it has, and I think there's also a real, and I've been, I mean, one thing that's encouraged me in the last month, and not much has, mm. is that I've been pleased to see growing numbers of vocal. Jewish Australians speaking out mm-hmm. against what Israel is doing, so saying, many, you know, so saying many. by all means the hostages yeah. should be released. What For Hamas sure. did was outrageous Absolutely. and stupid and criminal and mad. But as I said before, and it's so important to reiterate this, that there are groups like, for example, Loud Jew Collective. Mm-hmm. I don't know them personally, but I think they're mostly in Melbourne. They have often appearing at protests in support of Palestinians, basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing what groups like that would say, do not weaponize our suffering, mm. our suffering meaning Jewish suffering, in the service of killing Palestinians. Mm. Mm. And that is essentially what Israel is doing. And I'm actually doing a piece about this at the moment, although it's touched on in the book before October 7, how Israel and its supporters use social media to try to perpetuate that image. So this is one example. Before I'm doing a piece at the moment, there's a a viral post going around on Instagram at the moment of an Israeli soldier in Gaza. Yes, I saw that. He's holding a gay pride flag. Yes. And, I mean, apart from the fact that the tone deafness of literally Mm. the background is, I presume, northern Gaza, totally destroyed, Mm. so it's like apocalyptic landscape. Mm. And he has a message, according to the post, which basically says, I'm... I'm paraphrasing, I'm liberating Gaza from awful terrorists. Uh, Palestinians can't be gay if they want to be here in Gaza. And everyone now will see that it's okay for the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, to have gay soldiers and we are showing the world that you can be gay and also be a soldier. And a murderer. (laughs) So you see that and you think, okay, there is so much to unpack here. But the short version, people can find that easy online if they're interested, but the short version is that, yes, there are undoubtedly, and I've written about this myself, issues with certain Palestinian groups accepting gay people. I don't don't know. That is true, to be sure, but including in Gaza. But the idea somehow that you as an army would kill 11,000 plus people and somehow think that by holding a gay pride flag in Justifies the ruins, yeah. that somehow makes you a liberated person mm. is just insane. Mm. And it's sort of to me is the ultimate example of identity politics on steroids, mm. that the idea that people and maybe some pro-Israel people will see that as a wonderful thing, they probably will. But I think a lot of other people will see that and just see what cognitive dissonance mm. does there have to be here? There's a lot of conversation, and you um, alluded to this in our last podcast as well, is what the Israel rule book is. There's there's a document going around on social media, you would have seen it, called the, the Israeli Bible or something, where it's giving the rules of Judaism. And I don't know how real that is, but I'm seeing it. But what I look at, I'm looking at it at the moment, I'm seeing all these young Israeli soldiers, what, 300,000 of them. And then you look at the men in Palestine who are digging through the rubble to help each other, to help men, women and children. And even the ones that are walking and fleeing, they're doing it with such, I think, with such dignity. That's the word. And then I look at the Israeli army. It's almost cultish behaviour, right? And you think, 
what kind of generation is that going to be? What are we breeding by teaching people about hatred? You know, it's been, I mean, I agree, and it's been encouraging, although it's very small, that there are a small number of Jewish Israelis in Israel who are against that. Oh, definitely. But what about the soldiers? Well, this, I mean, yeah, the, the whole sort of iconography. You're fucking them and, up in a way, aren't you? Those well, young I mean, people. This, I mean, the whole, I mean, I, I, but I see this is not dissimilar to what the U.S. military did to so many young Americans mm. in Iraq and Afghanistan, which doesn't mm. by any means defend what horrible things they did in those countries. But in other words, to to get into the mindset and feel convinced that the only mm. way you, as a society, can be free mm. is to decimate in. Israeli's case, your neighbour, Palestine, and the Americans' case, Iraq and Afghanistan, both deluded ideas, mm. I think does play into a bigger picture, as I talk about in my book, that the culture within much of the Israeli mainstream long before October 7 has moved so far to the right. Mm. Not everybody, there are exceptions, including friends of mine who are on the left who are fighting Absolutely. a, I don't want to say losing battle, but a really yeah. hard battle. And oh, of course, definitely. it's growing backlash from the Israeli government on any mm. dissent and it, there is real war fever. Mm. Mm-hmm. And not that dissimilar, frankly, to what happened after 9-11 in the US where yeah. there was, if you came out and said, maybe we shouldn't invade Afghanistan, mm. this is going to be a catastrophe, you were deemed a complete traitor to the cause. And mm. of course the war was a disaster. And I think there is a real worry to me that that Jewish supremacy ideology, which has been paramount amongst so much of the Israeli mainstream, not just the fringes. Years Mm. ago it was the fringes of Mm. sorts, has moved very much into the mainstream and only have to look at the most of the political comments, so much of the Israeli media, much of the Israeli uh, public to the point where there's been a TikTok trend in Israel in the last month of Israeli soldiers abusing Palestinian Mm. prisoners who are blindfolded and laughing Mm. and spreading that, frankly, Mm. propaganda, apparently thinking that makes them look, I don't know, tough or cool or something. Again, the cognitive dissidence of recognising how do you think that looks to so much of the world? And and yet we call Hamas um, a terrorist. I mean, you know, you could argue that the Israeli army is a terrorist group. Well, I think elements of what Israel has done over the years is undeniably terrorism because they often target civilians. Absolutely. I want to talk too, and you've touched on this a little bit. So here I am in Sydney, Australia, Arab background, and I've spoken about this many, many times on this podcast. But here I am all the time now feeling that if I'm going to talk about what's happening, I have to apologise for what happened on October the 7th. And it upsets me so much that I've always got to apologise for terrorism globally or, you know... You mean because you're Arab? Yes. And You mean apologise or condemn or both? Condemn, yeah. Mm. Condemn and apologise, really, because I'm not valid until I do that. And I feel that so astutely. And, you know, we talked about this before we started recording. You know, I, I've been given threats. And even those I've been getting threats, well, I got a threat from a group of writers about me and my business and to take my post down. And even that I'm not allowed to talk about. So don't say anything. Don't say it. And you heard it right here in this office. It kind of is outrageous that all the time Arabs are on the back foot, all the time. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, the idea of threatening your business seems outrageous. I mean, I, mm. on one level, can't really you comment much. It. Yes, I yeah. can't really comment much beyond what I heard. And I'm, yeah. I mean, I believe it. Absolutely. I mean, I think what is happening conversely mm. <laughs> in parts of the Jewish community is if somehow, if you do condemn, the Israeli actions, you're a traitor. Yes, yes, yes. Now, obviously, it's, the same it's, very, thing. it's obviously quite different, but in a weird way, it's like it's like mirrored. Mm. And like I've done huge amounts of media in the last month here and overseas. Do you get threats? Um, well, obviously not so much. I mean, I haven't got a business. I mean, I guess I'm a freelance journalist, mm. so I haven't got a business per se. I mean, I obviously have, have a, earn a living, but I get I don't get threats so much for my livelihood, but I get a lot of threats and attacks for what I'm saying and doing, mm. which has happened for years. Mm. It's definitely been an uptick since October 7th. It mostly comes via email or social mm. media, private messaging, because I'm easy to find online. I don't really hide, you know, wh- where I can be contacted. And I guess most of it I oh, – do I ignore? I mean, yeah, I ignore – I mean, over the years I've grown a thick skin. Mm. I and mean, one of the criticisms which I get, and I've got it for 20 years and it's come back mm. with the vengeance in the last month – Jews who are critical of Israel are regularly called capos. I don't know if you know what that word means. In, in, I haven't heard that before. Yeah, K-A-P-O. Basically, during the Nazi period between 33 and 45, there were some Jews who believed disastrously, tragically, call it whatever you want, that the only way to save their skin, maybe, or their family, was to sort of work with the Nazis. Yeah, wow. In other words, yes, they were being traitors, yeah. but hopefully in this insane yeah. period they might be saved. And because nothing was normal. It was you know? Yeah. You know, complete anarchy for you yeah. know, 12 years. So fast forward to I started writing about Palestine 20 years ago that it is not an uncommon attack line to say I am a apparent a capo akin to working with the Nazis. Now what does that mean? That practically means because I – think Palestinians are human. I mean, it's not like I'm working with a terrorist organisation. I've got no, I mean, I've spent mm. time in Gaza with Hamas as a journalist. I'm not a fan of Hamas. A lot of Palestinian no. friends of mine don't like mm. Hamas or the Palestinian Authority for that matter. I think they've been a disaster for Palestinians personally. But this idea somehow that a Jew who criticises Israel is called a capo akin to working with Nazis. Now, 20 years ago when I heard that, I think I felt pretty I was probably initially shocked, mm. thinking, "Really?" Mm-hmm. Now, which it, I, I'm accused of that quite a lot, mm. which wouldn't surprise you. I mean, I, it sort of saddens me that that's where mm. it's at, mm. but it doesn't have any impact on me still speaking about these issues. You know, I think it's kind of some kind of post-traumatic stress. But when there is a shooting, a mass shooting anywhere in the world, particularly the US, because they're most common there, the first thing I hear, like soon as I hear about it. I think, oh, God, I hope it's not an Arab with a gun. I hope it's not an Arab Mm. with a gun. Because if it's a white person, if it's an Israeli person, if it's anyone else, Mm. it's a mass shooting. But if it's an Arab person that's doing the shooting... It's terrorism. It's terrorism. Yeah. Yeah, So a sniper takes a gun into a hospital in Palestine and shoots people in their bed, what's that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, clearly that sort of double standard really has been around since post 9-11, right? Mm. I mean, that's where this Mm. idea that, and I remember very much years ago, a lot of Muslim friends of mine would speak in the media after 9-11 and Mm. be asked, 
So you condemn what happened. You condemn Osama bin Laden, right? You do mm. condemn al-Qaeda. You do condemn whatever. Mm. And I think the problem with that is that, I mean, I've, I've often said, and I've done lots of media in the last month, if someone asked me that I have no issue condemning what Hamas did, but the idea that unless you say that, you're not granted legitimacy in polite mm. debate, mm-hmm. whether you're Jewish or mm. not, seems to me problematic. I mean, I think there is, there has been in some circles, parts of the left, not all the left, some of the left, a, how do I put this, an, an, an unwillingness after October 7 even to say what happened was horrific, mm. almost solely focusing on Israel's response. And by all means, let's focus on that response mm. because it's been horrific. But the idea that there are some people, not just saying, you know, Arab, Muslim, non-Muslim, mm. you know, whoever, just people who find it difficult to even say that what happened on October 7 was a massacre. I mean, it was a massacre. Of course absolutely. it was. Yep. But there is, I think there is an unwillingness in some circles to say that, and I think that's partly because for decades and decades Israel has been brutalising Palestinians, mm-hmm. and I think the well of sympathy mm-hmm. for Israeli Jews, not everywhere but in some places, is empty. Mm-hmm. Mm. And on one level, I understand that to an mm. extent. On the other hand, I think that takes us to a dark place. It does, because a human life is a human life. Mm. Listen, before we finish up, uh, you talked about in your podcast uh, the last time we spoke that you only see, um, you don't see a two-state solution. That I, 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 I don't know. I mean, for me at the moment, it's either two-state or nothing. Mm. What do you think? Well, right now, obviously, mm. nothing. Nothing. I think it – look, mm. the status quo for years – and this, of course, is one of the reasons that Hamas says they did their horrible attack to sort of break open the status quo that's imprisoning Palestinians. It's a shame they had to do it through mass murder. But mm. in the last month, Joe Biden, the Australian government, have said, you know, once this war's over, our commitment is once again a two-state solution. Okay. Well, I just – I don't see any viable path towards that because although I think there'll be a – sort of reorganisation of sorts amongst Palestinian political life. I don't know what that looks like, of course. I don't think Hamas will be a political force after this. I'm not saying there won't be any Hamas supporters, but, I mean, politically, I do not think Israel will allow any Hamas political presence in Gaza. I think it's over. And maybe the Gazans won't well, either. Indeed. Look what's happened to them, you know. Indeed. Yeah. So uh-huh. unclear. Yeah. I mean, the idea that the US is now saying, well, our vision is the Palestinian Authority, which is deeply corrupt, they should maybe manage Gaza. Netanyahu is saying he basically thinks, and I think a lot of the Israeli government thinks, that they should I mean, reoccupy seriously, Gaza. seriously, he should not be saying one word. He's a criminal himself. Yeah. He partnered with a right-wing extreme organisation, right. far right, He's to very form unpo- government. I mean, I feel like the political, yeah, well, I think his political life it will not be long anymore. Oh, I mean, he's had hope. cat of nine lives, and so who knows. what about that, but- his offsider, that, that extreme... Right wing nutter. Well, there's Itab- Itamar Ben Gavir, or there are mm. various others. I mean, he's empowered the you know the most far right extremist elements. Look, I think what will I fear what will continue to be the case, which is what it's been for years. It's a one state now, but it's apartheid state. I mean, mm. it is. There's a one state. I mean, I had a book years ago called After Zionism, which I'm actually hopefully we're going to be reissuing it next year. Mm. It's a, a Palestinian and I. Publishing a range of essays by Jews and Palestinians talking about what it would look like in a different reality, mm. essentially. Obviously, this is written many years ago and we'll update it now after the last month. And 
I am still of the belief that ultimately and inevitably there needs to be coexistence. Now, what that looks like right now obviously is very hard to imagine. Mm. So many Israeli Jews who didn't like Palestinians that much before October mm. 7 now, and I have Israeli friends who I've spoken to who sort of say there is real fear mm. amongst many Israeli Jews a lot more Jews are arming themselves because they don't mm-hmm. trust the military to protect them. It's going to a dark place. And, of course, many Palestinians, rightly, don't have a lot of trust in Israel because of what they've been doing for 75 years. So, And I don't really see the US as being any kind of honest broker because, they're, as was said years ago, they're Israel's lawyer. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, in the short term, there needs to be a ceasefire. There needs to be a cessation of, of violence. And then beyond that, I think there needs to be a massive conversation that is frankly, not going to be led from the White House. I mean, Mm. Biden or whoever follows him, and I fear it could be Trump Mm. or someone. I mean, if it was an election held today... Can you imagine if it's Trump? Well, you know, Uh. I can't. Well, I can and I can't. But I have to say, if anyone thinks that if Trump had been president in the last month, it would have looked that different... It wouldn't have. Oh, now, I don't I don't think for a second that Biden and Trump are the same domestically. There are differences. Mm. To be sure, I think Biden is a disaster personally. But Trump is undeniably far more dangerous. Mm. And there's really, I read lots of articles at the moment about Trump's um, team drafting plans about people they want to sort of target if they were in mm. office, you know, going mm. after so-called Silencing enemies. Everybody. Like it is, it would be unbelievably ugly. So mm. I'm hoping that enough Americans realise that and don't vote for him come next year. And yet the choice is Biden, who is clearly not in the best physical and mental shape. And I know in the last month that a lot of Arab Americans who have been polled, who traditionally vote Democrat, have said that support for Biden has plummeted. Now, would they vote for Trump? Maybe they vote for independent. Maybe they vote or for... Or maybe they don't vote. Or they don't, don't, don't vote at all. They don't have to So, vote. I mean, the short answer is I don't know where this is going, but I think to me the most important thing is still to say there is a viable path if we want to listen to that. I do still think it's one state. Mm. People might say it sounds utopian. It's not going to happen next week. Mm. But I think there needs to be at least a discussion what it would look like because I think ultimately, and it shouldn't be controversial... Israelis and Palestinians are going to have to live together at some point. They are, Hmm. eventually. Hmm. And the path that Israel's on at the moment is to have even more extreme nationalism, is what Hmm. I fear, backed too much by much of the Western world. Hmm. Anthony Lowenstein, thank you so much for your time. Anthony's book is The Palestinian Laboratory, and it's out now. And there's a few other books, aren't there? There are quite a lot of other books, yeah. Yeah, well, okay. It's... Well, maybe visit your website. Yes, it's all there. What's Thank the you. website? It's just myname.com, anthonylowenstein.com. And I should say that the Walkleys, which are Australia's leading yes, journalism award, has, to say congratulations. has uh, made my book. It's on the short list. Short I find list. out next week if I win or soon. So I might not win. If I don't, that's fine, sort of. But no, it's amazing to be on that list. I so, saw yes. that. Congratulations. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.